people stop when they're the tiniest bit away from their comfort zone. People put boundaries around themselves, but what I'm shocked at is how close the boundaries are, how tiny they are, how people don't give themselves any opportunity to be spectacular. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an incredible guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is a repeat guest. It is not only his second appearance, it is actually his third appearance on the show. And he has the distinct honor and privilege of being the first ever guest on the Thought Leader Revolution Podcast. He is known as Canada's coach. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one the only, the legendary Raymond Aaron. Welcome to the show, Raymond. I'm honored to be on your show, and I'm honored to have been the very first, very first. We've been in each other's lives, and we have dramatically improved each other's lives in such wonderful, sweet ways for many years. Very true. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The reason I asked you to come on the show today was not to share your business brilliance, even though you're known for that. The reason I asked you to come on the show today is because you've done something only a handful of human beings have done in world history. At the age of 62, you decided that you were going to be one of the heroic Arctic explorers of humankind. You decided that you were going to run the world's toughest race and go from Resolute Resolute Bay in Alaska to the magnetic North Pole. And you did it. You successfully did it. And I recently read the biography of the legendary Ernest Shackleton entitled Simply Shackleton by Serrano Fines. Serrano Fines is probably the world's greatest living explorer, him and Jacques Wishart. It's kind of one, two between the two of those men. And it just made me think, wow, what an incredible story. Why don't I interview my good friend, Raymond, and let's relive that experience together. And I'm so glad you said yes. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. So, Raymond, I want to start with this brilliant little ad that Sir Ernest Shackleton put into the newspapers in London when he was getting one of his incredible expeditions together. And the ad sounded like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Ernest Shackleton. That's such a great ad. I love reading it. I love it too. So... (laughs) So, Raymond, I know that you're a man who's inspired by doing big things. I know that you're a man who's inspired by inspiring others. What made you decide at the age of 62 to go and undertake such an incredible exploration? Well, the story happened when I was creating Chicken Soup for the Parent Soul, 
I happened to be on vacation in Barbados and the headlines of the local paper were Jan Meek arrives. And I said, well, so what? I arrived today too, who cares? I read the article and she had arrived using a different mode of transportation. She crossed the Atlantic Ocean in a rowboat. And I said, that's crazy. And then I read on and the other person in the boat with her was her son. Now I'm writing chicken soup for the parent soul. What an unbelievable mother son story. And so I phoned every hotel and I, found, I invited myself over and she said, please come. I said, but you just finished the race today. You must be exhausted. She said, I'm exhausted of hearing only my son talk for three months. I want to hear somebody else talk. And so she invited me over, but I didn't get to talk. She talked for hours upon hours of her amazing journey rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. And I became a dear friend of hers, a dear, dear friend. She was the oldest person ever to cross the Atlantic Ocean. And then 10 years later, she called me when I was 60 years old and said, how would you like to tie for last crossing another ocean? And she said that she will be the oldest person to ever cross two oceans. And I said, which one? She said, the Arctic Ocean. Let's tie for last racing to the North Pole. And I said instantly, okay, I'll do it. Wow. And I got a team and she was on a different team. There were six teams. I trained for two years. I had a world famous trainer, Nikki Ballou. <laughs> and for two years, Nikki trained me and got me ready for polar race, probably the world's toughest race. It's a 350 mile month long foot race to the North Pole at minus 40 degrees, hauling a hundred pound sled, dodging polar bears. Wow. Wow. So Raymond, 60 years old, you're in, but you were nowhere near physically or mentally ready to undertake it when you made the decision. So you set in motion getting yourself ready, but I think you very quickly realized that there was a whole lot you needed to do to prepare. Talk about that realization and what you started to do in order to get yourself ready to get there. Well, I was a little bit overweight, a little bit underfit, for life and a lot underfit for polar race. I was a 62 year old businessman who flew in expensive suits around the world giving speeches. I was in no way prepared for this just unbelievable athletic challenge. And so I hired Nikki and to my surprise, I didn't really know this, but Nikki trained me both athletically and psychologically. And I teach the psychology of wealth. That's what I do. I don't teach you go out and buy real estate and get rich. I teach you the psychology behind it and how to overcome the psychological and mental issues and how to overcome the emotional obstacles. And so I thought I had that handled, but Nikki moved me to a way, way higher level. And if I could skip ahead, once you're physically fit, it's only psychology. Because after I did it, a friend of mine who was 40 years younger than me and in an amazing athletic shape finished the race, but that's only athletically he finished the race. Psychologically, every night he broke down crying. Wow. 
And we had a rule that we weren't allowed to use our sat phone because it was like $15 a minute. But he phoned his mother, he phoned his girlfriend just because he needed that psychological help. And so here he is, I was 62, he was 22. And he made it athletically, but he couldn't make it psychologically. And I'm not putting him down. I love the guy. He's wonderful. And he finished the race. I'm saying it only to show that the psychology is so powerfully important. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is. And you know what? What's brilliant about the psychology is that getting yourself mentally prepared for that grueling, grueling experience probably toughens you up for a whole lot else that life threw at you afterwards. And whenever you were faced with, you know, something that was difficult to deal with, the fact that you had built your psychology to a level that had not been at before allowed you to overcome it, deal with it and treat it like it was really no big deal. I'll give you an example, my friend. When I was in the race itself, I was so far out of my comfort zone. For example, I had a real eager partner. It's two of us, me and Roddy. He was totally eager. He wouldn't relent on, he wouldn't let defeat. He wouldn't let weather. He wouldn't let anything stand in the way of achieving our goal each day. And one day we'd set a goal of 18 miles, which is very, very difficult. And we came across an ice flow field. An ice flow field is when the water freezes when it's, when it's um, turbulent. And so it's not a flat sheet of ice. It's like broken baby carriages and Volk, broken Volkswagen beetles. And it's all just gnarled and ugly. And somehow we have to climb over each obstacle and then pull a hundred pound sled over that obstacle and then get over the next obstacle. And sometimes the obstacles are just two or three feet apart. And sometimes it goes for an hour. So instead of being able to race, we actually were clamoring over these broken uh, pieces of ice. And when we got through a one mile ice flow, I said to Roddy, well, I guess we have to revise our 18 mile goal today. And he says, no, we will get there no matter what. I said, oh my God. And somehow we did it. And here's the lesson I learned. I notice in life these days, if we're at room temperature, which is like 72 degrees Fahrenheit, and then the temperature rises a little bit to 73, people will, will go directly to death. They won't say, gee, I'm a little warm. They'll say, I'm boiling. Well, if you were in a giant vat of water that was boiling, you'd be dead. And if it falls even a tiny bit from 72 to 71, they go directly to death and they say, I'm freezing. And I remember once I was at an elevator and the, the elevator was taking a long time to arrive. And a woman beside me said to her husband, why don't we walk up? It's only one flight. And he said, I die. Now, what he meant was he might have to stop and pant once or twice. Okay, fine. But he wouldn't die. And I noticed that people don't live in a city. They live on like 17 roads in that city, and that's the only ones they go on. There's 10,000 restaurants, but they go to the same six. They, and, and they like the same kind of food and the same type of movies. 
They just stay in this tiny, tiny, narrow channel and they think they're living. And I see life from such a different perspective that is, first of all, I feel uncomfortable when I'm way, way the heck out of my comfort zone. And then when I see myself out there, I say, so what? So what that I'm uncomfortable? And then I live with it and go even further. It has meant so much to me. And when I hear people say, oh, I can't be on stage. I'll die. I'll be so frightened. Really? You'll die? Really? And so I, it has just moved me to such a greater height. That's fantastic. That's a brilliant, brilliant lesson. And, you know, hearing you recount it just reminded me, hey, you know what? I'm going to be policing my thoughts and my language. If there's something that has me be out of my comfort zone, so what? Let's go for it. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. It's a brilliant thing to be able to get out there and get yourself out of your comfort zone because that is where you grow. So that's what I want to do. I want to grow. So thank you for that, Raymond. Nikki, let me tell you how my trainer, Nikki, did that for me one day. <laughs> you came to my gym, which was in our uh, condo. And instead of doing the regular training, I said, look, you need to help me. I can run up a hundred flights of stairs and run down a hundred flights of stairs. By the way, I lived in a 10 story condo. So I'd have to go up and back down and then up and back down, up and back down 10 times to do a hundred flights. And it's taking me 31 minutes to 33 minutes. And just for fun, I'd like to break 30 minutes for no reason than just to, to, I don't know, just to do it, but I can't, I've been working and working. And so we got to the bottom of the stairs and Nikki says to me, What's in the way of your doing it in under 30 minutes? I said, well, I always fear that if I work too hard in the stairs, I'll like have a heart attack and no one will find me for months because no, I lived in a luxury condo with wealthy people. Nobody used the stairs. He said, what else? I said, well, I shouldn't even be doing it at my age. I was 61 or 62 at that time. He says, what else? And I listed all of my issues and my excuses and my petty complaints. Maybe I'll blow out my knees and I'll not be able to walk for the rest of my life. And after each weak excuse, Nikki would say, okay, I'll take that for you. I'll give it back at the end, but I'll take it. I'll hold, just hold it for you. And I said to myself, what a bunch of psycho babble he's doing. I said, look, I teach this crap. Don't do it on to me. He says, well, if you teach it, you should obey it. I said, fine, fine, fine. And he eventually took all of my excuses away, all of them. And the, he set the timer and said, go. And I raced with all my might, with all my might. I raced up and down and up and down. And as I hit the bottom each time, he would say to me, you're three seconds behind schedule. You're one second ahead of schedule. And man, I was pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And when I got to the bottom at the very end, he said 29 minutes. And I didn't hear anything after that. I don't know if it was 29 minutes and 59 seconds. I didn't care. I had broken 30 minutes because of the psychology. I'll never, ever forget that, that event, that racing up a hundred flights of stairs and racing back down. I'll never forget it. It's amazing. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, that was a primary method for training your endurance that we used. And, you know, you, um, you were able, I believe, to get down to, I think, around 27 minutes at your fastest. Uh, and, and it was pretty incredible to see anybody do it that fast. Never mind a man who's 61, 62 years old. Um, the other day, I was in the gym and I was doing um, squats with kettlebells. 
And the fellow that, that I was working with handed me um, 24 kilo kettlebells for each hand. So that's, that's roughly about a hundred pounds, a little more than a hundred pounds. And um, it was quite, it was, was kind of heavy. And I, I did my first rep. He said, okay, do 15. I'm like 15. I normally do eight. Maybe I can do 10, but 15. Are you out of your mind? That's like double what I normally do. I do 50. Was that Just do 50. I'm like, okay. All right, screw it. I'll use my own psychology trick. I did 15, but man, the first round that I did 15, it was brutal, Raymond. At 12, I was like, oh my God. And by 14, I'm like, how am I going to get the last one in? And I did it and I was absolutely, utterly exhausted. But here's the interesting thing. I did a second set. If 15 was easy, I could have done 20. What? <laughs> yeah. And then I did a third set and it was even easier. I could have done 25. And I just went back there and I sat down and I said, you son of a gun, you used my own team, my own techniques on me. That was brilliant. And, and, and it was, it was absolutely wonderful. And I've been also doing these chin-ups, right? These like full extend down, hold yourself there legs straight. So none of these swinging BS, right? You have to just down and up and doing chin-ups like this is a lot harder than it sounds. Like people say they can do like 10, 15, 20 of those. You know, the guy said to me, why don't you do six? Now I've been doing three to four. So I said six. Okay. And you know what? Because I'd done the, um, the deadlifts at 24 kilos, it was a snap. I did three wow. sets of six. I just said, okay, that's the new, that's the, that's the new floor for what I'm going to do is I'm going to do three sets of six instead of three sets of three to four. And uh, it's, Maybe it's a brilliant thing. Now I'm going to share with you a quote from T.S. Eliot that is exactly on the topic of what you're saying. He said, you never know how far you can go until you risk going too far. And you and I both do that. We both do that. So, Raymond, you're trained, you're prepared. You're in Resolute Bay. It's day one. Walk us through the story. Okay. So, we get to Resolute Bay on April 1st. The race is always in April because before April, it's total darkness. And after April, it's open water and you can't go in total darkness. You'll break your leg and you obviously can't swim to the North Pole. And so you have to get it done in April. And when we got there, it was so cold. It was like I'd never experienced cold like that before. If you simply take your gloves off, you can never, ever get warm again. You have to go like into a building for several hours because the instant your body experiences that extreme cold, it realizes there's severe danger and it draws the blood from your extremities into your internal organs and doesn't release it. And so I learned a huge lesson. I was frightened. I was scared. I didn't know how to put up my tent in the extreme cold. The first thing they gave us was the poop lecture. I said, pooping? I'm not a poop. They said, you don't know how to poop in the extreme cold because what you do in the normal climates is you poop and then you look around for the paperwork. No, in the extreme cold, you got to do all the paperwork first. Take the amount of paper you need, fold it or crumple it, whatever you do, then bare your bum so that your bum is exposed for the shortest number of seconds. It was crazy. It was so <laughs> crazy. Anyways, after they taught us all these things, 
the gun went off and Roddy and I started racing. And within minutes, we were all alone. Like there's only one route from Resolute Bay to the North Pole. There's no, it's like the shortest distance is a straight line. How could there be no other people? And we were all alone for an entire month. It was it was so shocking, it was so frightening, it was so cold. And you know from your high school physics that sound is the vibration of molecules. Well, in extreme cold, molecules don't vibrate much. And so I can be two feet from you, I have to scream for you to hear me. And so it's dead silent and pure white. All we saw for a month was dead silence and pure white. It was such an extraordinary experience. Wow. Wow. So you're off. The gun went off. Dead silence in pure white. So tell me, Raymond, there were days where you must have been feeling like, oh, my God, this is probably the craziest thing I've ever done. There were days where you must have been thinking to yourself, how are we going to get through this? What did you do when those thoughts hit you? And, and, and tell me about some of the serious physical challenges that you faced along the way. Okay. So we knew there were three checkpoints and then the final North Pole. Checkpoint, checkpoint, checkpoint. I heard people say that all the time, but no one ever told me what a checkpoint was. So I just smiled pretending that I knew, but I didn't know. Anyways, we expected to hit the first checkpoint after five days and getting up on the morning of the fifth day, I was more than exhausted because, because of my age, I had to be racing longer than the others. I was 62. The others were in their thirties and twenties and they were racing nine hours a day. I raced 14 hours a day. Wow. And then it took another hour to set camp and then it took another hour to make dinner and then we had to call in at our prescribed time to race headquarters and answer a series of questions and then we fell asleep and got maybe five hours sleep and then we were up I had to make breakfast and then we had to break camp and race again and on my fifth morning I said I can't get out of bed I can't like inside the tent I couldn't get out of my sleeping bag that was it I was so exhausted, but Roddy pushed me out. I finally got out. We finally started. And I, you know, I got up into my rhythm again and I was just beyond exhausted. And I said, what am I doing? I'm too old. I'm too stupid. This is ridiculous. I shouldn't even be here. I'll never make 30 days. This is my fifth day and I can't make it. And then I saw something black on the horizon and there's nothing black in the in the high Arctic, there's just white. The sky is white, the snow is white, everything is white. And I said, that must be a checkpoint. That must be a checkpoint. Oh my gosh, I, this is the end of the fifth, like this is it, this is the end of the first segment. My gosh, I, I might make it to the checkpoint. And I pushed and I pushed with all my might, but I was so tired. And I said, look, there's six racers, there's six teams. So when I get close, I'm going to count the number of tents because dear God, please don't let there be five tents. Cause if there's five tents, not only am I dead last, 
but all the other racers have already arrived so long ago that they've already set up their tent. I said, please, God, not five tents. And as I got closer and closer and closer to my horror, I noticed that they put the, the checkpoint on the top of a big hill. Like the entire thing is flat. The race is on the Arctic Ocean. The ocean has to be flat. I, they found the only hill. And I didn't know what it was at that time because I was so exhausted, but obviously it was an island. And the reason they put the checkpoint at the top of the island is that polar bears don't like to go up hills. And so it was the safest place. But I didn't know that. I thought they were just being uh, hateful or hurtful or something. And so completely exhausted, just several hundred yards from the finish line of, of the first segment, I had to race up a steep hill. And as I got near the top, I counted the number of tents. There was five tents. I was a loser. I wanted to die right there. After all that effort, that inhuman effort, I was dead last. And when I got to the top of the hill, the other racers who had already arrived jumped on me and congratulated me. They were screaming, tears were pouring down their face saying, congratulations, how did you do it? And I said, you mean you're thanking me for not dying? Like, I'm dead last. They said, are you kidding? There's two very fast teams, two fast teams and two slow teams. I was one of the two slow teams. So I could only come fifth or sixth. I finished third. I was third to the first checkpoint. I had beaten not only the other slow team, I'd beaten both fast teams. And I said, but there's five tens. They said, most of them are the race organizer tents they flew in the previous day. There's only two racer tents. You beat everybody else. Oh my God, what, what, like my, my thoughts went from, I should die and I'm embarrassed and humiliated to I'm the greatest there's ever been. Oh my God. And it was all exaggerated because I was totally exhausted. You know, wow, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. So you went from feeling like the world's biggest loser to feeling like the world's biggest champion within minutes. It's just, oh, <laughs> that's right. And I so, had another spiritual experience, purely spiritual. I got up one morning later in the race and I was even more exhausted and I started going, I started going and we had started at four in the morning that day. And I was going and going and going. And I knew we would go from four in the morning, like for about 14 hours. And I looked at my watch to see how far we'd gone. It was six minutes after four. We'd been going for six minutes. I thought it was like lunchtime already. I said, oh my God, this day is dragging. I can't believe it. So I started tricking my mind. I started uh, saying the alphabet forward and backwards. I started saying the international phonetic alphabet, like Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. And I did everything I could. I looked at my watch. It was like nine minutes after four. I said, oh God, this day will never end. And I said, dad, can you join me, please? I don't know where I came up with that. But I asked my dad to join me. He had already passed at that time. And he joined me and he started talking to me. And then my dog showed up who had already passed. And my father and my dog were chatting with me and talking to me and explaining things to me and helping and we we're cracking jokes. And then I looked at my watch. It was two in the afternoon. I had gone for 10 straight hours without a break, without eating, 
nothing without stumbling, without even noticing where I was. I went from 4 a.m. to 2 p.m. without a break. And when I turned to Roddy and said, but it's too dangerous. We're supposed to stop every two hours and drink something. It's way too dangerous. Why did you let me go? He said, Raymond, I had never seen you move like that. You never stumbled once. You never had any difficulty going up or over anything. I'd never seen you move so gracefully without a moment's hesitation. I was skiing behind you or racing behind you or walking behind you or running behind you, admiring how amazingly well you were just gliding through the elements. My dad and my dog came to help me. Wow, that's a wow. God bless you, Dad. God bless your dog, and God bless you. That's incredible. Yeah. My dog actually told me a secret. Near the end of his life, he got really mean and was biting people and barking constantly. And during the race, when he came to me, he said that he had a brain tumor and that he forgave me for not knowing. So my dog told me. Crazy. Wow. That's, wow. Wow. Okay, give me another brilliant story from your experience, Sarah Raymond. We want to hear more. <laughs> well, I'll tell you an opposite story. I was at a party after Polar Race, and I was speaking to a young lady, and a mutual friend of hers and mine came up to both of us and said, Mary, wouldn't believe it. This is the guy that I was talking to you about. This is the guy that did Polar Race. Raymond, tell her about Polar Race. And she looked at me and said, too cold for me and walked away. Nikki, the story was too cold for her. That doesn't even make sense. How can a story have a temperature? But she couldn't handle the story was too cold for her. Never mind cold. So I notice all the time now how people stop when they're the tiniest bit away from their comfort zone. Oh, I can't apologize to my wife, she'd kill me. Oh, I can't ask my boss for a raise, he'll fire me. Oh my gosh, I could never do that. I could never walk to work. I could never bicycle to work. I could never walk up two flights of stairs. People put boundaries around themselves and everybody does, okay. But what I'm shocked at is how close the boundaries are, how tiny they are, how people don't give themselves any opportunity to be spectacular. They don't give themselves any opportunity to be spectacular, but you gave yourself such a brilliant opportunity oh, to be spectacular man. with Polar Race. So tell I me, did. what happened after your father and your dog got you through that day? What happened? Well, that... That, that day ended shortly. That was, it was great. But I'll tell you about another day. I knew I had about six hours to go and I was already exhausted. And Roddy turned to me and said, we're setting camp right now. I said, great, <laughs> great. I don't mind. And I said, why? And he pointed to the distance and there was uh, dark clouds, but way in the distance. I said, well, so what? He said, don't you remember in training? that the weather can change within minutes in the high Arctic. I said, yeah. He said, that looks like a dangerous storm way over there. I said, okay, it's way over there. What's the difference? He said, it could be here in minutes. I wasn't gonna argue, I was happy to stop. Anyways, 
we set camp and because I was so exhausted, as soon as we stopped, something took over me and it was worse than shivering. It was shuddering. Here's the order of events, shivering, shuddering, death. There's nothing between shuddering and death. And he looked at me and realized that if the weather got to us before the tent got up, we would die that night because you can't survive the cold. Never mind the wind. The wind makes the cold far worse. And we had to get the tent up. But I was unreliable because I was shuddering and near death. And he grabbed me and he looked in my eyes and he said, Raymond, hold this tent with all your life. Because if the wind comes, the tent will become a sail. And if it flies away, we will both die overnight, but you will die at the beginning of the night because I will kill you. Focus only on your hands and hold them as tight as you can, no matter what. And I knew he was serious. And I looked only at my hands, nothing else. I would not let myself think of anything else. And he did all the difficult work. He put the rest of the tent up. He, ha he hammered in the, the pitons to hold it down. He put big chunks of ice around the whole thing because it was, the storm was coming closer and closer and closer. And then he threw me in the tent and he threw all the stuff in the tent that I would need to, cause I was the chef to, to make a meal. And I got the kitchen set up and I got the burners going and I made uh, tea for him and tea for me. And I eventually stopped shuddering and he eventually came in and the whole tent was all organized for him. And he, he saved my life. If I was with a lesser wise person, we would have been hit by that weather and we would have not been able to put the tent up and we would have not survived the night. And then I had to get up the next morning and do 20 miles as if nothing happened. Wow. You're in the high Arctic. You're 62. You're shuddering one phase before death. And you had a man with you who looked you in the eye and said, Raymond, we're going to live through this. Essentially, that was his message is we're going to live through this. Listen to me and do what I say. And you just said, okay. <laughs> and, and boom, it was done. That reminds me of some of Shackleton's stories when they were, you know, on the boat trying to get uh, through to South Georgia Island. And, and they, they had a situation where the, the sea was just crashing all around them. They were in a lifeboat at that time because the ice had crushed the endurance. And Shackleton took a look at one of his folks who was just like looking like he was going to fall over. And he just started telling them a story. He said, we're going to get through this. Don't worry. And that confidence that he had, that leader of men, made the rest of the men on that boat believe that they were going to live. They were in a lifeboat in rollicking Arctic seas, you know? So that's not Antarctic. just a storm. It's a storm in the coldest Antarctic. weather. Antarctic seas. That's right. Rollicking Antarctic seas. Yes, he was in the South Pole. And this man managed to make those folks believe that they would live. And because of his belief, it infused their souls and they lived. Wow. And this man, Roddy, yeah. helped you live that day. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. A so, funny thing happened a month after Polar Race was done. We had a celebratory dinner in London, England, and I live in Canada. So I flew to London for the celebratory banquet. It was a black tie event. It was really swishy, swishy. And I took the red eye 
So I arrived at six in the morning and I flew business class. I was the first out of the airplane. So I was first to see the border crossing guard. And he said, name, Raymond Aaron, reason for being here, dinner. What? Dinner. You're coming here for dinner. Yes. When are you leaving? Right after dinner. You're coming here just for dinner. Yes. All right. Enjoy dinner. <laughs> he couldn't believe anybody would come just for dinner. But yeah, it was a wonderful event. And it was held at the Explorers Club, which it's very difficult to become a member. But our race organizer, Jacques Wishard, is a member of Explorers Club. To show how exclusive the Explorers Club is, when man first stood on the moon, he brought two flags. Everybody knows he brought the American flag. But what they don't know is they also brought the Explorers Club flag. Wow. And so I got to be in the Explorers Club building for that celebratory banquet. And I got my, I don't know if you call it a award or a trophy, but we have a, wow. a beautiful plate that each person signed. And you can see my Raymond right there. Yeah. And I have the signatures of all the others, including the race organizer, Jacques Wishard. And my wife put it in this framed cover for me so that I so that it would be safe and that's my physical representation that I did it plus all my memories and my photographs incredible incredible yeah. now, there was a day where you experienced snow blindness talk about that and how did you deal with it how did you overcome it oh my god this was the strangest thing in mountaineering the most of the people who die die on the way down you might wonder why and the answer is they they think it's over and and there's they're more exhausted by the time they're coming down and i had that same experience with four days to go to the finish line with four days to go like my gps at first said 350 miles and then it said 300 miles then it said 250 miles I could keep it. But meanwhile, I got to where it was like under 100 miles. I was so excited. And one day my glasses fogged up, which is always difficult. And I took my headgear off and I took my glasses off. And I said, gee, I wonder what all the concern is. Why is everyone so concerned about covering every square centimeter and always wearing the special goggles? So I took, I took them off. And the next day, my eyes started burning. And I'll jump ahead and tell you, I got snow blindness. The intensity of the light from the sun was so high that it burned my retina. It's called snow blindness. And my body somehow knew that I needed to survive for the next three days to get to the North Pole. And so my eyes were stinging but they never got worse than stinging and itchy. And I knew enough not to scratch them. Then I could see my GPS go down to 10 miles and then five miles and then one mile. And then it changed to yards and it was 1500 yards and then 500 yards. And then it changed at a, at, 
At one point it changed to feet. I was a hundred feet away from the North Pole and then 50 feet and then 10 feet and then zero. I'd gotten to the North Pole. I was zero feet away from the North Pole. And before I could react, two daggers were just stabbed into my eyes. My body held off the pain for three days so I could make it to the North Pole and just dove into the tent screaming, screaming, my eyes, my eyes, my eyes. And they ripped open their first aid book and they looked down for eyes burning and said, oh, were you wearing your glasses? No, well, you got sun blindness. And they had drops that were extremely powerful painkillers that you drop into the eyes. And they said, I could only have one dose of it because if I got used to it, I would start scratching my eyes because they were itchy. And because I couldn't feel my eyes, I could really, really badly injure my eyeballs. And so they gave me a, one drop in each eye, which dropped the pain again. And then basically they put, they made sure I kept my mitts on, even though I was inside a tent to make sure I couldn't access the itchiness of my eyes. And the interesting thing is there's nothing any doctor can do about snow blindness. It goes away on its own in 36 hours. It's just unbearably painful. Wow. And not only did my body hold off the pain, the extreme pain for, for three days so that I could get to the North Pole, it also held off the healing because my healing didn't start to the North Pole and then lasted 36 hours. So all the time that I was brought back on the airplane to our home base, our hotel in Resolute Bay, my eyes were shut and I had the big bandages around my eyes. Incredible. Yeah. It's just the events that occurred are so hard to believe and so extraordinary and so out of the ordinary. And I've asked medical doctors about snow blindness. They say, yeah, yeah, it goes away in 36 hours. I said, yeah, but mine went, mine held off for three days and then went away after 36 hours. And they said, no, it, that's not possible. Okay, but it happened. I'll tell you something, wow. Raymond. Um, you may think what I'm about to say here is crazy. And I, and I would totally take that from you if, if, if you say that. And you may say no to what I'm about to, to suggest that you and I do together. But I'm very inspired by this conversation. I, I, my, 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 my body's light, my soul is light. So I'm going to come out and say it, Raymond, this is a story that needs to be told the way you're telling it. Now, this is a story that millions should read. And I'd like to write the book with you, a trainer wow. and his, uh, and his athlete. And we will come up with a better name than that about Raymond Aaron's story at 60 and 62, getting ready and doing this and all these heartfelt things that you put in there, because we're living in a time right now in the world where I think this is a message that is going to go viral. Wow. Well, you certainly have the, I don't know if it, the word is the right to co-tell it with me because you were the trainer. Uh, all right. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. I love it. Now, I love it. I, I had the thought of teaching 10 principles of wealth by using what I learned in racing to the North Pole. And I had a very humorous title for it, How to Get Rich Without Getting Cold. <laughs> well, it, it could be like an Ogmandino book and you could have the 10 principles in there, but I say we tell the story and then we tell the principles yeah. after because that's what's gonna get people to do it. But I love it, you know? 
the greatest explorer in the world. <laughs> it's just great. <laughs> it's, wow. It's yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wrote three books last year and I'm, I'm on track to do four this year. It's crazy, but it, it's, um, th- th- this is, this moves me very much. And, and, and reading that, that book about Ted Shackleton, uh, Ernest Shackleton, excuse me, Ted Shackleton, someone else entirely, and having this conversation with you today brought it back alive for me. It's brilliant. We're living in a time, Raymond, where people need to be inspired. We're living in a time where the world's going crazy. I mean, you know what's been happening in our home country of Canada, and it looked like like <laughs> the son of the man that brought us the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and decided he was going to shred them for a while. <laughs> and you know, Russia has invaded Ukraine and China's thinking about invading Taiwan. People need a little hope. People need a little inspiration right now. Very, very true. Yeah. God bless you, man. God bless you for coming and sharing the story. So you got to the North Pole, snow blindness hit you. The journey's over. Tell me, how did you feel in the depths of your soul? Well, I had a mantra that I would say when you were training me, whenever it got difficult. Oh gosh, I was to cry already. I said, my partner Roddy and I arrive at the North Pole in total health and safety with the Northern Lights dancing in celebration of our success. And I said that over and over and over. And just before the gun went off at the beginning of April, I told the race organizer my mantra and he laughed at me and said, Raymond, there's no Northern lights when the, when the sun is out. Northern lights are only when it's total darkness. And I said, Jacques, when I get to the North Pole, there'll be Northern lights. And the truth is, even if there was, I didn't see them because I was snow blind. But oh. I was so happy through my pain, my eye pain and my total exhaustion, because I had dedicated two years to basically nothing but polar race. I trained one hour to 10 hours a day, every day for two years from age 60 to 62, an hour to 10 hours a day. And I don't mean like you go to a gym and you look at some cute girl's bum. I don't mean that. I mean, all out pushing with everything I got. Because if any time when I was training, I felt tired or I felt weak or felt, you know, why don't I just do three hours today instead of four hours? I'd say, what if that extra hour is the difference between my making it to the North Pole or not? And then I would put out even more energy and I would make it. Like one of the things I would do when I finished my day of work and then finished the work that I took home, at 10 o'clock at night, I would strap on my vest and tie it to a a tire and the friction between a tire and the sidewalk is very very high and it's as if i'm pulling 500 pounds that's that's what it felt like and i would i would go around a, a city block a concession in each way and it would take me from 10 at night till two in the morning And once I started, I never stopped. I never went back early. I finished the whole thing. And people would honk and say, what are you doing? And I'm not going to give them the whole story. But this friend of mine, Jan Meek, who got me into it, 
She also trained that way, but she did it during the day and she'd be hauling this, this tire around and people would stop her and say, why are you hauling a tire? And she had an answer for them, which she only told me after polar race. She said, well, I was convicted, but there was no room in the women's prison. So the judge said I had to haul this tire for 10 years. And people would say, oh my God, that's horrible. And that would lift her up and she would just go on. <laughs> So there are such wonderful things that happened and such terrible things that happened that I soldiered through and it has made the rest of my life easy. Wealthy people are prepared to do what's difficult and that's why their life is always easy. And broke people will only do what's easy and that's why their life is so difficult. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, I'll tell you what I've experienced in this conversation. Um, I've been fully with you for every single second. I experienced a man who went through a crucible and he rose to the challenge and that challenge showed him who he really was. It showed him the nobility in his soul. And whenever you think back to that experience, you just are reminded of how that nobility was called forth. And I believe very strongly, Raymond, that everybody needs an experience like that. I'm going through something put together by a man named Andy Frisella called 75 Heart. And 75 Heart is, it's really a mental toughness challenge. You do two workouts a day, one outdoors, 45 minutes each. You drink a gallon of water. You eat according to a nutrition plan. You take a progress picture every day and you read a minimum 10 pages in a nonfiction book. That's it. But you do it every day. You don't mess up once. If you mess up even once, you go back to day one. That's the tough part about 75 wow. So I'm on day 29 today. I'm on day 29. Wow. Yeah. And I'm, I'm here today having this conversation with you because I wanted to be reminded how somebody who was a, a let, let's, be, let's be blunt for a moment, who was a, an out of shape businessman who hadn't done anything remotely resembling the level of toughness that polar race required for a very, very long time, if ever rose to that challenge and kicked it to the, to the curb because I wanted that inspiration for myself selfishly. And I wanted to share that inspiration with my listener. And, and, and I just want to say thank you for coming here today and sharing this brilliant, beautiful story. It was fun for me to relive it. Thank you. And now we're going to relive it again together, writing this book. I'm excited. I'm telling you, I'm excited. That's going to be fun. I'll, uh, I'll connect with Danielle and we'll figure out the planning part of it. But it's going to be great. So, Raymond, you know, I learned this from you when you, when you, when you had your Wealth Creator Source program to end off every interview by asking my guest expert for their top three expert action steps. Normally you'd give them about business, but I don't want you to do that today. I want you to give it to my listener when it comes to, to inspiring them to get out of their comfort zone and do something brilliant and daring that'll ennoble their soul. What are your top three expert action steps related to that? Aha, uh -huh. you didn't prepare me for this at all. <laughs> okay, so the first one I can think of is Take, take yourself out of your comfort zone, but only in a small way just to get started. 
just to realize that you don't die. For example, if you always go to work the same way, try a different route. When you go to a multi-screen theater, instead of watching the kind of movie you always watch, maybe a romantic comedy or a thriller or something, try a different genre of movie. You won't die. Just try it. That little step will be the first step in a long series that will move you, that'll make it easier for you to move out of your comfort zone when you need to. Uh, number two, read a book that is going to be co-authored by me and my dear trainer, Nikki, whenever it comes out, we'll tell you about it. And God, you've got me on the spot. What will push them to a new level? Yet yeah, get out of your comfort zone emotionally by doing some, doing the first thing that comes to your mind right now. Maybe it's returning a book that you borrowed and you have forgotten to, you haven't forgotten. You're hoping the other person has forgotten and you're too embarrassed or apologizing to your kids or your wife or your husband. Like if there's something that you know that you're on the wrong side and you're embarrassed to do it, take that step. You'll notice that you actually won't die. So the first one is getting out of your comfort zone in some physical way. The second one is reading our book. And the third is getting out of your comfort zone in an emotional or psychological way. Wow, Raymond, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm excited. Uh, listener, if you want to find out more about Raymond and the incredible work that he does, he's got a website called Aaron.com. He's on Facebook with this brilliant group called uh, get real with Raymond. And if you join that group, just remember whenever you post, you have to use the word real in your post. <laughs> That's important. And um, go check out all the incredible books that he's written. Go check out all the incredible programs that he's put together over the years. And um, yeah, when our book comes out, definitely buy it and read it. It's absolutely amazing. Raymond, I've got a few friends of mine who've got some pretty good podcasts. I'm going to connect you with them and tell them to to uh, to bring you on to talk about the story because it's a pretty amazing story as far as I'm concerned. I will accept every invitation. God bless you. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's guest, the one and only Raymond Aaron, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or go to wherever you happen to listen to this podcast, be it iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or Audible. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. 